Whose revenge are we talking about here? everyone and welcome to Season 3, Episode 47 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we chat about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage novelist P.A. Duncan. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I had Thanksgiving dinner brought to me because I was, still am, recovering from some not minor, not major, but significant surgery. And then on Saturday, we had our real family Thanksgiving with the grandkids, etc. As for the surgery, I'm still a bit sore and not allowed to drive, which when you're not allowed to drive and you depend on driving a lot, it's very disconcerting. But I'm doing well well enough to chatter aimlessly with you. I was also able to make my NaNoWriMo word count and didn't miss a day, even the day of the surgery. I surpassed 50,000 words on Thanksgiving Day. So, let's talk about writing a bit, particularly about the issues that arise when you're using all your familiar characters, but in a different way. In my NaNoWriMo project, Grace Under Pressure, I'm telling the story of a secondary character, Grace Lydell, the directorate's head analyst. She interacts on a daily basis with all the main characters, my, Alexei, especially Alexei, Nelson, etc., but she isn't operational as they are. She collects and assesses data, draws conclusions from that data, and uses said data to plan missions for operatives. What? You thought, like, James Bond, Mai, and Alexei got vague instructions from Nelson and dashed off improvising along the way? Yes, an intelligence officer, case officer, operative, spy, whatever you want to call them, has to improvise, but they're never sent out into the field without adequate intelligence that's been vetted and authenticated. Well, one hopes. That is what an analyst contribution is to the spy game. And it's not terribly exciting. I was an analyst for the government, for the Federal Aviation Administration, for quite a few years. And trust me, it's all reading stuff and writing stuff based on what you've read, it's not terribly exciting at all. So this year's NaNoWriMo project was an opportunity to tell a story that shows a character's growth. Now, Grace Lydell is recruited by the directorate when she's 19 years old, still in college, taking a degree in Soviet studies. However, Her dream is Broadway. She's minoring in theater and figures, eh, she could go to work for the United Nations for, say, five years, save some money, move to New York, 
and still be only 24 years old to audition for theater productions. She has a plan, and she's not going to be deterred. Except, she finds the work at the directorate surprisingly fulfilling. She still has to fight job discrimination and sexual harassment in the office, like any woman professional in the 1960s and 1970s. But frankly, there's not much action. And I don't think there should be. Remember, I'm committed to writing about spies as they actually work. And whereas it's movie-worthy to have an analyst thrust by chance or design into an operational role, I don't think I can write that. Well, actually, I have written such a scenario into a not-ready-for-prime-time draft novel, and it doesn't end well for the analyst. But what we do see in this rough draft NaNoWriMo project is a woman who is determined to be the best or better at what she does and who rises through the ranks to be the head of the entire analysis department for the directorate. Someone who is in on critical counterintelligence operations behind the scenes and in making decisions about national security. And it's a rough draft. So maybe it'll end up with some action after all. December is shaping up to be a busy month for me. (laughs) Yeah, recovering from surgery. Go figure. There's the cover reveal for Revenge coming up on December 10th, and then the actual launch of Revenge on December 24th, holiday shopping, a weekend retreat, and dealing with family again in a month's time. I'm proofing the proof of Revenge in the vain hope of finding all those minor typos and formatting issues, but it's on schedule. Or, as Mai would say, it's on schedule. For the release on the 24th of the ebook, the paperback, and the hardcover editions, everything is on schedule. And book three, Treachery, in the series Meeting the Enemy, will go to my editor in January 2023. Phew. And now it's commercial time. Revenge, Meeting the Enemy Book 2, is still available for pre-order up to its release date on December 24th. And it still has that special pre-order price for the ebook only of $1.99. And to celebrate Revenge's upcoming launch, the ebook of Book 1, Terror, is on sale, also for only $1.99. For under $4, you can get Books 1 and 2 for yourself, but hey, why not splurge? and buy them for friends and family. Boom! Christmas shopping done. And now, commercial over. Let's read a bit now from Revenge. This is from Part 5, which is titled Orders, 
and Mai, though hunting for Alexei, also has to keep her CIA cover intact, her CIA cover as Catherine Burke. That means gathering intel by questioning local leaders in Kabul and reporting back to the CIA's station chief there. When she gets a tip from a local that someone needs to look into the contents of some cargo containers on the Kabul airport, she has to convince her station chief it's a good idea. Also, a few scenes before this, a mysterious contractor has shown up and approached one of my CIA team, Brian O'Keefe. He's asking pointed questions about my, or rather, Catherine Burke. And when O'Keefe doesn't dish any dirt, the man threatens O'Keefe's family. But O'Keefe does the right thing and tells my what has happened. Revenge. Meeting the Enemy, Book Two. Part Five. Orders. After interviewing the rest of the local leaders from her list, Mai and the team headed back to their base. The team went off for some food, and she, Kolya, and Yuri went to Frank's office. With Kolya and Yuri tucked in one corner of the room looking bored, Mai opened her mouth to report. Frank held up a hand and nodded toward the Russians. Do either of them speak English? he asked. No, she replied, knowing Kolya did and Yuri had learned a bit from Natalia. Frank frowned, looked at the two men, and said in English, Your mother likes screwing dogs. Neither man blinked. Satisfied, Frank nodded for Maida continued. She relayed the information and handed over her notes finishing up with what Walid had told Salim, though she made it sound as if it had come from one of the interviewees. Both the CIA and the military were antsy about those in the ranks who had relatives in the country. What do you think you'll find? Frank asked. Well, the person wasn't specific, though there was a definite sense of urgency. Has to be a weapons cache. The Taliban may have stored weapons on their way out of the city. They may lay low, regroup, then execute a coordinated attack at multiple points. Military flights in and out of the airport would provide them targets. You're thinking RPGs, bomb-making materials? Mai nodded. The contact said it was on an area of the airport seldom watched. Go into the airport. I want you and the team and nothing less than an APC. If it is a weapons cache, you'll be exposed to snipers and booby traps. Did you pay for the info? If she said no, Frank would suspect it was a trap, which it might well be. So she lied. He gave the information without asking for money, but he didn't refuse payment when I offered, she said. Frank's brow wrinkled as he thought. Trap. Gotta be, he said. If you think we should check it out, I'll keep that in mind. Frank laughed and shook his head. Burke, even if I don't think you should check it out, you'll find a way to do it on your own. All right. All I have for your team tomorrow is same old, same old. Check it out. I'll beg Transpo from the Army and a couple of soldiers to go with you. I'll have an authorization for you to get on the airport by the morning. Army's got it locked down. 
Frank, if you're too specific about what we might find, the army will decide it's their operation. Wouldn't it be better optically if the CIA found a weapons cache? Are you speaking in your capacity as one of my team leads or as a headquarters puke? I'm one of your team leads, of course, but Boyd wouldn't mind a little good publicity given all the fingers pointed at the CIA about September 11th. Frank smiled at her. Ever thought about being a politician? Heavens no. Okay, I'll be all obtuse and dissembling when I get the authorization from the army. Thanks, Frank. Burke, you actually expressed gratitude. Are you going soft? If only. So, um, how's the super-secret mission going? On hold, while you have me doing community relations, Mai replied without moderating her tone. Ouch, Frank said, grimacing and holding a hand against his chest. That stung. Does the mission have anything to do with the cargo containers at the airport? Not that I know of. He studied her through narrowed eyes, as if gauging her truthfulness. She'd picked the right time not to lie to him. Burke, you're doing a good job here. I give you a list of houses to visit and people to talk to, and you come back with that list complete. The best I get from anyone else is maybe 40%, which keeps me awake at night wondering if one of those fair-haired boys has missed something. Don't let anyone say you're not doing your job. Mai wondered why he felt the need for a confidence booster. He looked at Kolya and Yuri again and back at Mai. Yuri, Kolya, wait for me outside, she said in Russian. Kolya frowned but nodded, and the two of them left. Some, uh, some guy came to see me, Frank said. Claimed to be from Langley. Ask a lot of questions about you. Let me guess. Am I loyal to the administration? Was I responsible for Gonzalez's death? Am I possibly passing intel to the Taliban? And his name was Dan. The frown furrows on Frank's forehead deepened. You got this room bugged? No. He approached someone on my team. He's not from Langley. He likely works for a contractor, Security Solutions. So, what did you tell him? Not a damn thing. When I asked to see ID, he suddenly had something else to do. What is up? I may have made an enemy high up in the food chain. And Langley? No, a bit higher than that. Security solutions. Hmm. That's part of Fullerton's specialty, so... He gave her a lifted eyebrow. She replied with a shrug. You got this under control? Yes. Is Boyd aware? Yes. Well, I hope you pay the two comrades enough to ensure their loyalty. She smiled and said, I do indeed. I'll be fine. Make sure you are. I don't want Boyd on my back. You see anything out of the ordinary at that airport, you call me. Trevit. Got it? Bien sûr. This Dan Burkholder was persistent. She'd give him that but he hadn't done his homework well. So was she. November 19th, 2001, Kabul Airport. 
Frank couldn't wrangle an APC from the Army, so their usual Humvee it was for the trip to Kabul airport. O'Keefe drove with my riding shotgun. The two soldiers who served as security were in the back with the team, telling jokes and exchanging war stories, while one soldier manned the fifty cal mounted on top. The authorization allowed them through the Army checkpoint at the airport, and they headed to the southeast end of the runway. The abandoned Aeroflot hangars, their red paint faded to a sickly pink, were worse for the wear, with gaping holes in the siding and shattered windows. O'Keefe swung the Humvee behind them, his pace slow, mindful of booby traps. A dozen cargo containers, new by the look of them, lay in a precise row, right where Salim's brother-in-law said they would be. The windows were down in the cab of the Humvee, and Mai knew what she would find. For a moment, the stink of death took her back to Balkan mass graves with decomposing bodies. Ghulam had marched into Kabul with hundreds of prisoners the Americans allowed him to keep, to ransom back to their families. By the next day, the prisoners were nowhere to be seen, and Ghulam was on his way back to Mazar-i-Sharif. Mai stepped down from the Humvee, O'Keefe close behind her. He coughed, almost a gag, and took his handkerchief from a pocket to tie over his nose and mouth. The bagel and coffee Mai had had for breakfast started to crawl up her esophagus, and she swallowed hard. Jesus, what died? Hatfield complained. The rest of the team grumbled, too. Shut up, all of you, O'Keefe said. He turned to the corporal, who had a hand over his nose and mouth. Crowbar? Yes, sir, in the Hummer. Go get it. When the corporal returned, Mai took the crowbar and headed for the closest container, the stench increasing with each step. She breathed through her mouth, but that didn't cut it much. She used the crowbar on the padlock, sealing the container doors. O'Keefe and the corporal pulled the doors open. Bodies of men, starting to bloat and rot despite the cold, with swollen faces gaped at them, piled atop each other at the doors, their fingers had curled and locked like claws. The inside of the door bore bloody scratch marks, and the fingernails on the bodies were broken or bent backwards. Mai closed her eyes for a second, thinking this was a PTSD flashback. When she opened them again, it was real. Holy Christ, the corporal said. The specialist turned away to puke on the ground. Yuri crossed himself, and Salim murmured a prayer. Everyone else was stunned silent, even Hatfield. Open them all, Mai said. Take pictures. Take a lot of pictures. She turned, walked away, and took out her sat phone. Oh, that was quick, Frank answered. What'd you find? Gulam's prisoners. What do you mean? The containers have no weapons. Only dead men. I'd say dead close to a week. Frank was speechless for a moment, then... Fuck me. Fuck me. Secure the scene. I'll be there ASAP, he hung up. Secure the scene with ten people? Mai walked back to the two soldiers, both ashen and sweaty. I want you there and there, she said, pointing to either end of the old hangar. Backup will be here shortly. The two soldiers jogged to their positions, probably grateful to be able to turn their backs on the horror. 
My pulled Salim, Cooper, and Hatfield off opening the containers and had Yuri and Kolya join them to form a second but thin perimeter. She, O'Keefe, and Adams finished opening the containers until they all yawned open and revealed more corpses, likely close to three or four hundred of them. The rumble of multiple Humvees drew Mai's attention, too soon for Frank. The U.S. Army was suddenly interested in why she was here, and that put an unthinkable possibility in her head. Two Humvees only stopped where the corporal stood guard. A captain stepped down from the Humvee and the corporal stood to attention and saluted. O'Keefe, Mai said, tighten everyone up here and keep taking pictures. I'll speak to the captain until Frank can arrive. Kolya? He turned to her as she walked by him. In Russian, she said, No matter what you see the Americans do, do not react. That is like telling me not to breathe, he said. Hold your breath. Okay, I think on that grisly note, that's enough for this week. There's plenty more to come, though. And don't forget the pre-order and the sale on books two and one, respectively. I'll post the link to the pre-order and sale in the description for this episode. And I realize this episode this week is a little short, but I'm still getting back into the swing of things, recovering from surgery. So we'll be back to our usual half hour or so, probably next week. Now, we've gotten through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but there's still lots of shopping left to do for this holiday season. I'm going to try to do most of mine online. But if we do have to go out among the madding crowds, don't forget to keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, Copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. And you know what I'm going to say now. Stand with Ukraine.